for those I've not met, my name's Steve Holmes. Uh, the picture behind me is where I work when we're not locked down, uh, St Mary's College in St Andrews in Scotland. Um, and uh, it's my privilege to be part of the team um, hosting this day and to introduce our first two um, contributors. One of the um, joys of having this online is uh, uh, we can all gather from wherever we are instead of having to go to obscure and out of the way places like central London. Um, and that does mean we've had far more Scottish involvement this year than in any previous years. And uh, our first contributor is um, Lena Toth, who is presently assistant principal and lecturer in practical theology at the Scottish Baptist College in Paisley. Previously, um, Lena was pro-rector and academic dean at IBTS in Prague. Um, you may know her book, Transforming the Struggles of Tamar's Single Women and Baptistic Communities. Um, if you're friends with Lena on Facebook, you'll also know that she uh, collects um, bizarre and amusing male and female toilet signs. Um, usually when you make a comment like that, you say, I suppose someone's got to do it, but um, I'm not really sure. Uh, anyway, Lena's going to speak to us on um, the topic friendship in Christian practice, personal, communal and missional. So Lena, if you'd like to unmute, and we'll hand over to you. Thank you, Steve. Well, at least one of my secrets is out now. <laughs> um, it's good to be with you this morning. And um, yeah, looking forward to, to the rest of today and our discussions. Um, to start us off today, I indeed would like to invite you to think through our understanding and the practice of friendship, something that has come out of my thinking about our theology, working theology, as well as desired theology of, of um, singleness and marriage. Um, it's a concept that is often assumed to be rather straightforward and complicated, right? But one that theologically has been largely ignored and one that in practical terms is often found weak or missing in our lives and in its absence causing significant harm personally and communally. For much of its history, Christian theology has been marked by a strong degree of ambivalence in regard to the idea of friendship. Such a viewpoint stands in contrast to the great significance that was attributed to friendship in the classical world of Greece and Rome, as exemplified in Plato's and Aristotle's interest in philia, a sibling kind of affection or friendship, love. For the thinkers of the ancient world, friendship was a central, if not the most important aspect of a good, happy life. But with the arrival of Christianity, the practice of friendship became increasingly suspect and regarded as morally inferior in comparison to the love of one's neighbor, agape. At the heart of the inferior status of philia, friendship love, was its preferential nature. That is favoring some people who were friends over some others who were not. So here, for instance, is Søren Kierkegaard's summing up of the matter. He says, Christianity has pushed earthly love and friendship from the throne, the impulsive and preferential love, the partiality, in order to set spiritual love in its place, the love to one's neighbor, a love which in earnestness and truth and inwardness is more tender than any earthly love in the union and more faithfully sincere than the most celebrated friendship 
in Concord. Today, friendship is frequently treated as an accessory of leisure. A nice thing to have, but not something we'd consider absolutely indispensable. It's been further reduced by the common experience of time deficit, be it due to high demands of work life or family responsibilities, or even one's life mission duties, uh, whether that mission is understood in Christian terms or not. Furthermore, high levels of people's mobility throughout their lifetime often preclude the nurture that friendships require. And the fear arising from problems shaking the institution of the nuclear family in the Western world today adds further strains to the practice of friendship. It is often perceived, consciously or not, as a rival to one's commitment to one's partner and children. When all of this takes place in a highly individualistic rather than relational framework of personal identity, friendship cannot be anything else but an extra, however nice and helpful. Yet at the same time, Western societies are facing what has been widely and increasingly described as nothing else than an epidemic of loneliness. And there has been a renewed interest in friendship, both in academia and in culture at large. In addition to this, we also have a fascinating phenomenon of new connections, which have become possible through social media and therefore have created new and distinct avenues for pursuing and renewing friendships. Currently, this is a lively area of research in a number of disciplines, and that's only going to continue in the light of the experience of the last 11 months, uh, when these online connections have blossomed in entirely new ways. What is largely missing, however, is a recognition of the importance of the theology and the practice of friendship for the life and witness of those who claim to belong to the Church of Jesus Christ. So what I would like to suggest is that the intentional nature of faith communities, such as Baptists, is an invitation to consider Christian life through the lens of a theology of friendship. And at this point, allow me to share a personal story. As long as I remember, my Lithuanian grandmother always insisted on using a very particular word to refer to her church. She called it drogwamene, a Lithuanian, strange Lithuanian word, which literally could be translated as friendhood. She was frequently recommended a more modern and much more widespread word, bendruomene, or commonhood, or community. But in her daily prayers, she would continue to pray for her friendhood, often going over the names of each of these friends and their lives. And she kept doing that until her last days of 102 year long life. The more I thought about this, the more I found her word of choice to be an important theological reminder. Congregations, communities of Jesus, could be understood and understand themselves as communities of friends. Indeed, we see a thread of friendship in the life of Jesus himself. We know of his close friendship with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, 
We also witness Jesus addressing his disciples as friends. And then we also find that Jesus was mocked as a friend of sinners and tax collectors. What I would like to suggest today is that all three modes of friendship are important, indeed vital, for the Christian practice today. At this point, an astute eye may recognize in this ordering the pattern of thinking about Christian ethics by a Baptist theologian, James William McClendon, whose starting point is the bodily element or personal life, followed by the focus on the community of care or the social expression of ethics. And then thirdly follows the realm of the anastatic or resurrection ethics, which colors and aligns the other two strands with the vision of the newness of life that is possible through Christ. And so we start with friendship in its personal expression. Here we're dealing with the most common, indeed primary understanding of friendship, a practiced, a practice experienced personally and individually. As already noted, personal friendships are often regarded as unfortunate casualties of our crazy schedules and various life demands. What is interesting is that even if adults may not have time for cultivating their friends, parents usually greatly care about the friends their children have. They know too well that, as David Matsko McCarthy says, through friendships we gain a sense of who we are and what the world is like, of the universe, of the everyday." End quote. What is also interesting to me is that, just like romantic love, friendship is often pictured in an idealized fashion. A myth of a perfect friend suddenly appearing in one's life, uh, uh, somewhat similar to the appearance of a knight on a white horse or love at the first sight. And if you don't have that experience, when, then tough. You just don't, apparently you don't have uh, the gift of friendship. One of the ways to move away from this idealized script and to help ground the practice is to consider the key virtues involved in the growth of healthy personal friendships. And here, friendship, uh, here virtues are understood as certain skills or qualities indeed needed for the successful participation in the practice such as that of friendship. This approach follows the methodology of Alistair McIntyre. Um, his seminal after virtue, especially. And in regard to personal friendship, I propose to start our virtue list with four such qualities. Commitment, particularity, mutuality, and vulnerability. So briefly on these four. Commitment is often understood in terms of readiness to give one's time and attention to a friend. It grows together with a practice when friends discover each other's trustworthiness and faithfulness, not as a cold rational calculation, but as a process of an ongoing growth of our lives together. Here, however, comes an interesting point. Although friends will often be those we naturally gravitate towards, there is another dimension of friendship in the conscious choosing and committing to make and keep a friend even in relationships which start without any attraction or even with antipathy. And maybe you can think of something like that in your own life or something you've observed as something that was very consciously chosen. And in the process of that, 
um, resulted in a, a friendship that actually was extremely dear at the end. It cost a lot in the process. One of the aspects of commitment is that it necessarily limits the number of people one can be committed in this way. Genuine friendships are necessarily particular. And here again comes the common reproach of friendship as being too limited, too preferential. But in Mother Mary Frances's words, how can we have a universal love except by particularities? So it is out of committing to befriend the first and the second and the third person that one can begin to grasp how to befriend the fourth and the fifth, who perhaps seem more difficult to love at the start. Friendship is also inherently mutual. It grows best in the soil of reciprocity. Yet such reciprocity is not necessarily straightforward. People often befriend those with similar interests and capabilities, but friendships can also develop between very unlikely friends different, differing in age, status, or outlook. For some, giving may turn out to be the more challenging part of mutuality, yet for others, it will be their ability to accept the gifts of friendship that will be the test of its genuineness. Indeed, without knowing reciprocal, mutual love, it is unlikely that we will be able to eventually love those who will not reciprocate it, strangers and enemies. Mutuality leads then to another virtue of friendship, namely vulnerability. It is a crucial virtue at the start of a new friendship when we risk having our offer of friendship snubbed and it is also imperative later as friendship develops and the amount of trust put in another person risks greater sorrow if betrayed. It is precisely such risk that can be too much to bear for some, with the result of various mechanisms of protection being built against the possibility of making oneself too open to the impact of the other. Perhaps the most significant of such mechanisms is an imitation of friendship which does not allow the other to reciprocate. As Christian ethicist Gilbert Mylander puts it, quote, we get the unpleasant feeling that love is being turned into a weapon with which to protect the self against the possibility of rejection, end quote. So commitment, particularity, reciprocity, and vulnerability. These virtues are key to healthy personal friendships. And of course, the list could be continued by adding other qualities, such as trust, respect, or patience. And maybe you'll want to think further about the specific virtues that you would find especially important in the practice of friendship. But thinking about the link between friendship and virtues is just as relevant to the communal expression of friendship, the next mode I'd invite us to look at. In the words of Jesus to his disciples, I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my father. 
there is no way we could describe the 12 as a group of natural personal friends, can we? It is difficult to think of outlooks more different than that of a tax collector and a zealot. Yet their being together presupposed a certain common purpose, which required walking together, eating together, living together and getting to know each other so well that they either had to become enemies or friends. Because of that common purpose, they were to become an embodiment of a very particular kind of friendship that is characterized by its communal nature. And of course, the church is not the only place in which such friendships can be born. As sociologists and social psychologists have noted, a certain goal can bind very unlikely people uh, together in friendship, in context-specific relationships. For example, those formed at work or groups united by a political goal. But theologically, as Mary Mother Francis puts it, the church is called to be quote, the pattern of friendship in the world. We ought to be the ones to whom other people could look for the clear picture of how real friendships work. This is the way it functions. This is what it does. This is what it produces in people, end quote. At this point, it is worthwhile considering the relationship between the practice of friendship and the convictions we carry, both as individuals and communities. Contrasting convictions to opinions or preferences, I follow here the work of James William McClendon and consider convictions as the drives behind our motivations. In a very real way, convictions make us who we are. And if we undergo a radical change of convictions, we become, we become significantly different people. And if holders of significantly different convictions arrive at a mutual understanding of some key issue in question, they both, or both groups, will have been considerably changed in the process. It is for this reason that a profound change of convictions can be called conversion. It is also important to note that convictions do not necessarily match our professed theology or convictions we say we hold. Instead, our actual convictions become visible in the things and practices we choose to spend time, energy and money on. These choices will reflect particular loyalties and interests which will speak much clearer than any words. Indeed, humans have an incredible capacity to deceive themselves and others, and this is where friendship has a key role. As Alistair McIntyre has observed, without friends who are able to speak the truth, he says, one becomes the victim of one's hopes and fears of wishful thinking and fantasy. Unless we are very careful, we tend not to see things as they are, but as our fantasies predispose us to see them. And we can only be rescued by this, from this by a certain kind of friendship." End quote. Furthermore then, thinking of our practice of congregating for worship and fellowship, Baptist scholar Sean Winter argues that Baptist hermeneutics can be viewed as a practice of a community of friends 
who are gathered around scripture, striving to read the world through the lenses of this very scripture. In their, quote, diversity, disagreement, and even conflict over the meaning of scripture, end quote, they are to build one another by offering a witness to what by the grace of God has been revealed to each. And as they engage in communal discernment, this may lead to repentance, a change of perspective, but also possibly, and sadly, the parting of ways. I suspect that too many of us here have had the unfortunate experience of witnessing the latter as well as the former. Such convictional struggles among the friends of Jesus serve as reminders of how challenging loving friends will sometimes be. Yet there seems to be no other way but to learn, to keep learning, to be friends, because of the one who befriended us all first and who invites us to extend our friendship behind our own circle. And so we move on to the third mode of friendship, a practice that can be described as missional at its core. At this point, therefore, another virtue comes to the fore, that of hospitality, as we consider friendship as a missional practice. Inhospitable friendship is not really friendship, but it's caricature. And that is especially true in the case of befriending strangers. Hospitality is one of the central virtues in the scriptures and certainly a feature of the communities of Jesus as far as the New Testament is concerned. Yet it is also something that is easily overlooked in the life of contemporary church busy with doing mission. Extending friendship to the other means facing our fear of those who are different, our suspicion that we might be taken advantage of or manipulated, our uneasiness with a very likely possibility that as we make room for that which is foreign, it is going to change our current patterns and indeed our very selves. The possibility and the fear of such intrusion are accurately, acutely felt at the present time uh, in the increasingly multicultural society marked by such challenges as migration and refugee crisis and religious violence. The reaction of the churches is a litmus test of this third missional mode of friendship and therefore the test of the convictions of these communities of faith. The practice of public worship may be a good starting point of exploring our convictions concerning friendships and hospitality. The gathering of the community of Jesus's friends is not to be focused on attracting strangers, but it should have a welcoming door, literally and metaphorically, for those who may come. Assessing the welcome or its absence is likely to lead us to consider such ideas as liturgical enculturation or missional worship. What is also important to bear in mind is that many of the strangers entering our worship will do so because of an already existing relationship with someone who is connected to the community of faith. Alan and Eleanor Kreider have written that 
Friendship is the most basic reason outsiders come into the gravitational field of Christian churches and communities. More to that, what will speak most to them is the implicit yet strongly if subconsciously felt reality of a certain ethos of friendship or otherwise, an atmosphere, a communal attitude expressed in language as well as non-verbal cues, something that is so easy to miss unless we create space for such in-depth reflection and are willing to be open to what might be revealed about our non-verbal communication. Missional friendship guards the Christian community from becoming insular and self-serving. At the same time, the practice of friendship understood missionally dismisses such strategies as friendship evangelism, whereby one might want to become friends with another person so that the latter would become open or feel obliged to hear the gospel. Indeed, it asks for a non-instrumental, open-ended relationships which respect the freedom of the other, including the freedom to believe and worship differently or not at all. In the Baptist tradition, this has often been expressed as a concern for and the conviction of the freedom of conscience. From Thomas Helvis' appeal for religious freedom for heretics, Turks, Jews, or whatsoever in the 17th century, to the General Secretary of the Baptist World Alliance, J.H. Rushbrook, reiterating a declaration against racial persecution issued by the 1934 Baptist World Congress in Berlin, and offering the hand of sincere friendship to the British Jewish community in 1935. To conclude then, Elred of Rivaux, 12th century Cistercian monk and abbot, spoke of true and eternal friendship, which begins in this life and is perfected in the next, which here belongs to the few where few are good, but there belongs to all where all are good. In Elred's vision, this friendship to which here we admit but few will be outpoured upon all and by all outpoured upon God and God shall be all in all. The moments we are able to experience with very particular people are indeed the signs of the very presence of God and of the promise of the fullness of life. The hope for the future then is not the extension of such relationships, but their healing, transformation and expansion through the costly journey of learning to be a church of the friends of Jesus. Not everybody would agree that the relationships between and beyond the members of a believing community are best termed as friendship. But I have taken a view that the practice of friendship is an inseparable element, not only of our personal lives, but also of Christian discipleship and mission. More than that, friendship can be seen as one of the central practices of the church set in a culture which yearns for connection, but often is unable to practice healthy bonds of love. As Paul Waddell suggests, the church should be a befriending community that not only welcomes all who come to it, but also offers them a place where the grammar of intimacy and friendship can be learned. The nature of friendship in which Jesus calls his disciples, to which Jesus calls his disciples, is of a radically hospitable nature. 
It asks us to open up ourselves to others beyond our personal attractions and preferences, and even beyond our communal loyalties. It urges us towards that missional practice of friendship, both within and without the confines of the buildings in which we gather, within and without the Zoom screens um, that we inhabit these days, and calls us to the risk of being called friends or the despised and disregarded. Thank you. Many thanks, Lena. Um, we have got a number of questions in the chat bar. Um, not um, time for all of them, I think, but Martin, do you want to come in first if you unmute yourself? Hi. I was just wondering, Lena, whether you could comment on the long running discussion about whether Christian and secular friendships are different aspects of the same relationship or whether they are distinct? Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Uh, interesting question, isn't it? Um, I find it somewhat artificial, to be honest. I, and again, it probably says a lot about my understanding of God and how God works. So much, you could say that this is, you know, an expression of these different modes of friendship. Um, you know, and but it's true in any case, isn't it? We, there will be particular spheres of life that we will be able to share with some friends, but not others. Um, the only thing I would say is that I find that secular friends sometimes are secular, whatever that means, are better friends, more committed friends. They teach me more and they often teach me more about God as well. And I suspect I'm still thinking about that on a regular basis when confronted with some of their questions. Um, so yeah, the only thing I would say, I welcome such friendships into my own life and I kind of don't want to put them into separate boxes from friendships I share with those uh, with whom I also share my faith. Thank you. Um, Ron Rye, would you like to come in if you unmute yourself? Hi, Lena. <clears throat> um... Great paper, thank you very much. Um, I'm just wondering whether, with the emphasis on the paper being feeling like it was more on human to human relationships, do you think that it is then possible for us who come following the physical presence of Jesus on earth to be able to call him a friend? Or was that a peculiarity to the people whom he gathered around him at that point in time? Oh, this is an interesting one. And hi, Roy, Aaron. Um, yeah, um, I think there's something really significant about thinking of Jesus as our friend, given that, as you say, we don't have the, the personal, real-time interaction with him. Um, and I think this is where we move perhaps to another area, which I haven't touched at all, which is the whole idea of friendship with God, mm. of which of course we already have in the Old Testament. I have a hunch that it is an entirely different sort of experience and practice, which is why I didn't cover it here at all. And I suspect much of our relationship of, with Jesus um, would, would fall there. But what I would say is that we can learn quite a bit from how Jesus practiced his friendship 
uh, with his disciples and in that sense em, you know emulating him in our own practice of the church that's where I would start I think the rest would be in that maybe another paper on friendship with God Thank you. I think time has gone, unfortunately. So thank you very much, Lena, for a very rich paper.